he reaches down and he releases the tourniquet. Because it hurt. Because it hurt. Because he had no concept of how important it was for him to not bleed out into the ditch. He releases the tourniquet. Now, fortunately, the medic caught it and was able to tighten it back up and, and give this person adequate analgesia so that they would be a little bit more compliant. But it goes to show that, you know, tourniquets are tourniquets are, are hurt hurting. Hurdy. They are hurdy. They're so hurdy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. We planned to do a microsode to put in a plug for National Stop the Bleed Month, but we ended up talking about bleeding control for over an hour. I got the sense he could have talked twice as long, which would have been just fine with me because these deep dives are just my style. He speaks with detail and precision. Listen in as Max Dodge and I discuss the art and science of bleeding control. Max, thanks for coming on the show. I want to talk about bleeding, and I purposely picked you because we had a recent discussion about National Stop the Bleed Month, and you got me all excited about bleeding control. Tell me exactly what is your affiliation with National Stop the Bleed? Thanks for having me on. It's really an honor to get to talk with you. I am on the board of directors for National Stop the Bleed Day. And last year it was a day. I remember just like big time. Everybody was talking about one particular day, but this year it sounds like you're trying to do a whole month. Yeah. Last year it was March 31st. As we grew closer to the day, we realized that it interfered with two major religious holidays, uh, the first of which being Easter and the second of which being March Madness. <laughs> so we decided this year we would uh, extend it out into to March. And then because there was such a, an unexpectedly large response, just so many people who helped us pick up the banner of bleeding control and, and deliver it to the general public, we extended it to the entire month of May with a ceremonial Stop the Bleed Day on May 23rd which coincides with uh, EMS week. And this is all built around the principle of educating laypersons on bleeding control? Yeah. So this all came out of the Hartford Consensus, which was a gathering of medical professionals after the Sandy Hook shootings to try to take a look at the problem of preventable death. And specifically, what they found out was Bleeding was the primary cause of preventable death in trauma in the United States. Taking a look at what we could do in order to prevent those deaths. And one of the things that they found was bystander bleeding control, or what they term in their consensus statement as immediate responders. So those people who are immediately on hand to lay the first bandage, as it were. The fate of the wounded really lies in their hands. I've actually thought about that. It's kind of morose, but I've thought about that when I've traveled like to Mexico for just like tropical vacations with scuba diving and such. I've thought about the fact that I'm out on a boat, you know, there's maybe three or four of us. They might have a few medical supplies, probably not much. And I've thrown on occasion, not reliably, but on occasion, just thrown a commercial tourniquet in the like the bottom of my scuba bag. Is it reasonable to think that I should be carrying a tourniquet with me everywhere I go? You know, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that everyone carries a commercial tourniquet on them at all times. Just like 
it's unreasonable to expect that everyone's going to carry a pocket mask with them at all times. That said, I'm one of those people who carries a barrier device on my keychain. Um, I have one that's small enough, it doesn't impede my lifestyle, and it's important to me to have that available. In the same way, I'm also one of those people who carry a tourniquet with me at all times. So you do that. So that that's what I was thinking. I was like, am I supposed to be that person because I'm the paramedic? Am I like, are my friends expecting this of me? Is the is the world expecting this of me to like be ready like, like that? You know, I, I, I do not consider myself to be the standard when it comes to this. I am, you know, I have 15 years in the military I've been a paramedic for 10 years. You know, I have studied this sort of thing, you know, mass casualty incidents and active shooter events. And maybe out of a sense of paranoia, I carry a tourniquet with me. Uh, Maybe out of a sense of maybe I can be the person that stops the bleed when it's necessary. I haven't really sunk a whole lot of thought into it. It just, I carry one. That said, I, I don't expect everyone to carry a commercial tourniquet. I think that it would be far more, I guess, socially acceptable to have bleeding control kits publicly available in the same way that automatic external defibrillators are publicly available. And I've been thinking that because I saw them. I saw some bleeding control kind of units on the wall at, at the Austin airport recently. I think it was Austin. And I was out at my kid's soccer field recently, and I saw their AED up at the bathrooms, fields just all around this kind of central building. That'd be a perfectly great place to throw up a bleeding control kit. And I don't know if you do this, but sometimes when I'm out in the world, it's kind of intrusive, but I'll just like play out a scenario of like, am I ready to deal with some type of medical emergency? And one that I was thinking about recently was I'm just sitting in my little chair, my daughter's practicing soccer. You know, the, the scenario I usually play out is cardiac arrest because I knew I was going to be talking to you soon. I thought, okay, if somebody was bleeding right now, maybe a coach cuts themselves on a, a piece of metal sticking out of a, a old, you know, soccer goal or something. I'm definitely going to run to the coach. We're going to put direct pressure on. Maybe it's mangled so much that I can't quite seem to like figure out where to actually put the pressure or for whatever reason I can't stop the bleeding. What is my next move in that moment if I don't have a tourniquet with me? Your first instinct to apply direct and steady pressure to the wound is is exactly right. You know, we've always taught that. My first introduction to teaching in the civilian world was teaching first aid to people who work in industrial settings. And, you know, the principles that we taught them, you know, steady direct pressure is, is the solution to bleeding absolutely remains the truth. There's there's no magic here. Whether that is with your bare hands or the cleanest piece of cloth that you can find, find the source of the bleeding and apply steady direct pressure to the bleeding. In most cases, that's going to, to stop the bleed, even if it's an arterial bleed. I mean, you could close an artery with a finger if you find it. So I worked in a cath lab for a year as a paramedic. While it is not a place that you can grow as a paramedic necessarily in terms of the the full scope of your skills, it is absolutely a wonderful broadening assignment to really dig into a few um, you know key aspects of being a paramedic. You know, obviously cardiology, but interestingly enough, 
hemorrhage control because effectively what these people are doing is they are making arterial punctures and some of them are very large. We're loading these people up with heparin and, you know, basically turning off their ability to effectively form a clot for a while. And so we find ourselves holding direct pressure over arterial wounds for 5, 10, 15 minutes until we achieve hemostasis. If you do have a very good understanding of the anatomy, if you understand kind of mechanically what you're trying to achieve and you have the patience, you can absolutely compress an arterial bleed and achieve hemostasis. The problem occurs when you want to do something other than hold direct pressure, like manage an airway. That's where mechanical adjuncts are going to come in handy. That's where we see packing a wound is going to come in handy or applying a tourniquet. So this this coach, for some reason, I don't know why, but I can't figure out where the bleeding's coming from, and it's just continuing to kind of pour out maybe some weird kind of anatomical situation. I just can't get to the artery, right? In my mind, I'm like, great, time for a tourniquet, but I don't have one, right? I don't have the one that I've trained with as a paramedic. Do I make a improvised one? What we found kind of early on in the Iraq war and, and this is true when I went over there in, in 2005, 2006, I carried tongue depressors taped together and a cravat. That was my tourniquet system. And what we were seeing from that period of time was that improvised tourniquets had a nearly 70% failure rate. You know, it could be the tourniquet itself was not effective, you know, the way that we were teaching. Uh, it could be that these people weren't practicing putting this together, which is probably likely. It could be that their first instinct was to apply a tourniquet. And while they were putting together the pieces to apply a tourniquet, the patient was still bleeding out, which is also pretty likely. Really, your first instinct is the correct one, apply direct pressure. Once you've done that, someone needs to put that tourniquet together and apply it. So whether that is strips of shirt, whatever you can find as a windlass, it would be then your responsibility as the, as the senior medical person, as the person who's trained for this, to talk them through in a calm manner, building that tourniquet and applying it while you're holding direct pressure, which can be pretty tricky. So would you say the wrong thing to do would be to use a belt? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And I, I work in a a medium city. We have 111,000 folks and, and between them, they managed to surprise us once in a while. And so I've seen a couple occasions where people have tried to use belts. Generally speaking, the flow of blood was not controlled by a belt. That doesn't mean that you can't slow it down a little bit. You know, uh, it's kind of like putting your thumb over a garden hose. Generally speaking, you're not going to control that bleeding. And the reason for this is is pretty simple. Uh, it requires a lot of pressure and a lot of sustained pressure in order to close an artery. And that's what you're doing with a tourniquet. You are putting enough pressure to squish that artery closed so that the systolic beating of the heart isn't able to push blood past that pinch point. This is most reliably done, reliably and repeatedly done through the use of mechanical advantage. What you've seen with tourniquets throughout the ages is some sort of windless device 
or in some cases a screw, or in some cases a ratchet. Through this application of mechanical advantage, we're able to squish that artery closed, keep it closed, and then, you know, effectively turn our backs on it and treat the patient, treat other needs of the patient. What we see are not generally effective are belts and uh, zip ties and other sorts of uh, what we call in the rope rescue, just a change in direction. So if you run a rope through a pulley, that doesn't give you mechanical advantage. If you're lifting 20 pounds, you have to put 20 pounds of force on the other side of that rope. If you put a windlass in that system, as you twist, you have mechanical advantage there. The other thing that we are seeing now is elastic tourniquets. So we have the uh, SWAT T and a couple other elastic tourniquets. While they they absolutely can be effective, you certainly can eliminate a pulse. It comes back to the idea of it being repeatable and reliable. The jury's still out on some of these tourniquets, but uh, the studies kind of lean towards these other mechanisms with mechanical advantage, like the windlass and the and the ratcheting system, things like that. You were describing me holding directed kind of digital, like with the, I think of my using my fingertips if I can, instead of just like the palm of my hand and just smushing into them. I want to try to figure out where the bleeding is coming from and like really get the pressure on kind of with the tips of my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you can figure out where the bleeding is coming from. So um, back to this sad coach, <laughs> I'm holding pressure on him. I was imagining me being the one putting on the tourniquet, but you're saying I need to keep holding, even though it's not being effective, maybe it's slowing the bleeding and then have someone else put on the tourniquet. Someone needs to hold pressure. And, and you're absolutely right about, about fingertips. The femoral artery is maybe about the size of your thumb. Your brachial artery is maybe the size of your pinky or your ring finger. These aren't big targets, especially in the military. I have no idea where it started, but we taught the idea of putting a knee into the groin or putting a knee into the armpit in order to stop the bleeding. I don't know where the message was lost in translation. What we see people doing in these circumstances and and slamming their knee down into a person's groin to stop bleeding is just anatomically incorrect. They're, They're just not pressing in the right area with the right force in the right direction. And so you're absolutely right that direct pressure in this case is either going to be with your knowledge of anatomy and pressing right where it needs to be, or more likely for a um, an untrained bystander, just pressing over the wound as hard as you can until the bleeding slows down, which is more likely to happen. I think that if you unthinkingly throw a knee into a bleeding area, that you're not going to achieve direct pressure like you think you're going to, uh, and you're possibly going to hurt the patient more. As you as you were talking to me about me holding pressure and someone else putting on the tourniquet, I couldn't help but think about that is such an analogy of what we've done with CPR. It's like I'm doing CPR while I send someone off to go get the AD. It's, it seems so similar. Like I'm holding pressure while I send someone off to get the tourniquet or I request a tourniquet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and I guess big dreams here. I would love to see a bleeding control kit posted either next to or inside every AED cabinet that is mounted on a wall across America so that 
we can get to a point where if someone's injured, one person can hold direct pressure and say, go get the first aid kit or go get the bleeding control kit. And then they will have the the tools and resources that they need to to make a difference in that situation. The bottom line is, and you nailed it, um, someone needs to hold direct pressure. And it doesn't necessarily have to be you. So if you figure out where direct pressure needs to be held, you can absolutely take someone else's hands, press them into that area, and show them how hard that they have to press down in order to, to stop that blood flow, which frees you up to do other things. With bleeding, I mean, we, we could be talking like five minutes here. Like we're t- We could be talking quick. Yeah. In the worst case scenario, you could lose enough blood to go into irreversible shock in three or four minutes, maybe sooner. What's more likely is that, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose enough blood in the five or 10 minutes that it takes for the EMTs or paramedics to show up in the first ambulance to cause irreversible harm. We know as paramedics that once we allow someone to go into hemorrhagic shock, that their chances of a positive outcome diminish rapidly. It's really important to prevent them from ever going into shock in the first place. And we do that through immediate effective bleeding control. Do you want to talk about mindset? (laughs) Yeah. So you said something earlier that I loved, which is, Sometimes you'll be sitting there and you'll be afflicted with the the common paramedic malady of thinking, oh man, what if that school bus full of nuns tips over right now? What am I going to do? So when when I've been overseas uh, with, with medevac specifically, I was in the US Army's dust off units, which provide medical evacuation from the battlefield. And so our job was 80% sheer boredom punctuated by 20%, you know, hair on fire screaming through, you know, the deserts with polytrauma patients. It's very easy to be lulled into a sense of complacency and to think, oh, today's a slow day. Nothing's going to happen. I can go take a shower or I can wander off, you know, away from the flight line. So what we did, it was sort of a game that we would play. What am I going to do if I get a call right now? What am I going to do if something happens right now? Where are my boots? You know, where is my body armor? Is everything positioned just so, so that I can go from sleeping to flying in less than seven minutes? And do you think you would mentally rehearse the steps? Just sit, you would just sit there, but then mentally go through what you would do to get mobilized? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, a habit. Excellence doesn't happen accidentally. Excellence is something that needs to be practiced. And so this was our way of practicing the steps needed for us to attain excellence. To apply that to what we're talking about now, you know, you're absolutely doing the same thing. What happens if someone gets hurt right now? What am I prepared to do? You know, what can I use for improvised tools until help arrives with commercial tools. Yeah. I mean, some things like allergic reaction, I'm, I've got nothing like I'm, I, I'm useless in my regular life. I truly am calling 911 and standing there, but for bleeding, I'm not useless or for cardiac arrest, I'm not useless. And so I do kind of mentally rehearse those 
I don't plan to mentally rehearse them. I just kind of start daydreaming and it, it goes there. Yeah. The, you know, I, I tell my EMT students all the time and I remind my AEMT students as well. Being brilliant in the basics is what makes you advanced. That all life saving starts at the EMT level and that the worst thing a paramedic can do is forget that they were once an EMT. When it comes to problems of airway, breathing, and circulation, we're it. We are the masters. There's a lot that we can do. Sure, in the case of you know severe anaphylaxis, the best we can do is maintain their airway in, until it closes itself, and then it's you know supportive care and CPR. In the case of bleeding, there is immediate care that can be done that achieves positive outcomes. But one of the big myths that needs to definitely die is that if you apply a tourniquet, the limb will somehow be lost or damaged or disabled in some way. This is just not true. Now, don't get me wrong. Placing a tourniquet is not a benign procedure, and it is important to document the time of placement because once we get down the road a ways the, the, after the two-hour mark, you know, up to the six hour mark, then there are certain precautions that we should take when we prepare for reperfusion. But if we look at the use of tourniquets in an operating room over the last decades and decades and nearly a century, we can see that these reperfusion episodes can be well managed as long as we know how long the tourniquets have been in place. So it's, it's really not the issue that we make it out to be in the pre-hospital world. Andrew Fisher wrote a great article on myths surrounding tourniquets for the Havoc Journal. I heard him recently in another podcast. I'm going to link to his interview also uh, in the show notes because it was an excellent interview. It was more, I think it was on total EM and it was uh, less talk about BLS care and a little bit more talk about blood replacement. It was an excellent episode. Yeah, that guy's a... He's, uh, he's definitely one of my personal heroes. Um, all right, so myths. So we talked about ischemia. I haven't heard this one in a while, and I think we're doing a good job with kind of uh, proliferating evidence-based medicine. The idea that we need to loosen a tourniquet in order to allow blood to reenter the limb, periodically exsanguinating your patient does not lead to therapeutically positive outcomes. <laughs> uh, so don't loosen your tourniquets. In fact, Tourniquets generally are painful. Yeah. You can just take you can just take generally out of the that sentence, right? <laughs> uh well, you know, there there are some of us that are are too thick skulled to to uh to admit Yes, to to admit to pain. <laughs> Never would we admit to pain. But you know, I, I saw this really interesting video a few years back and it was a group of British soldiers. They had received contact. This was in a ditch in Afghanistan, their medic was wearing a GoPro strapped to uh, like a helmet or something like that. Their lieutenant got hit in the leg and the medic tied a tourniquet and then took off his helmet and laid it in the mud next to the lieutenant. The camera happened to catch the lieutenant who is traumatically injured, kind of out of his gourd. He reaches down and he releases the tourniquet. Because it hurt. Because it hurt because he had no concept of how important it was for him to not bleed out into the ditch, he releases the tourniquet. Now, fortunately, the medic caught it and was able to tighten it back up and, and give this person adequate analgesia so that they would 
be a little bit more compliant. But it goes to show that you know tourniquets are tourniquets are are hurt hurting hurty. They are hurty. They're so hurty. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm glad you edit. Uh, <laughs> oh no, I'm leaving that. Oh no, that's gonna be the title. <laughs> tourniquets are hurty. <laughs> So can I ask you this? If you're done telling the story of that guy, you're absolutely right. Analgesia, like they hurt. I was going to ask you why you think they hurt. Do you think it's the, it's, it's ischemic pain, right? Just like any other ischemic pain hurts like crazy. I, you know, I haven't really, I haven't really meditated on why a tourniquet hurts. I had just settled on it's really damn tight. It takes between three and 500 millimeters of mercury for a cat tourniquet to reliably achieve cessation of pulse or, or to reliably occlude the femoral artery. So we're talking about putting you know, three to 500 millimeters of mercury to the surface tissues of the skin and that pressure being tra- you know, transmitted through one of the largest muscles in the body all the way down to that femoral artery. And that's a lot of pressure. I have people who complain when the blood pressure cuff that's, you know, six inches wide inflates up to 160 or 180 millimeters of mercury. And we're talking about applying above 300 millimeters of mercury over a one and a half to two inch band. That's going to hurt. So let's change the scenario. We're back out at the soccer field. Someone does have a commercial tourniquet. I'm holding the pressure. What can you tell me about where to place that tourniquet when it arrives? I think there's some some dogma that has uh, filtered down from other agencies. So uh, most of the people who have done this have heard place a tourniquet high and tight or uh, place a tourniquet high or die. So I've heard that because I've had um, military guys in my classes, but it came. I hear it from them. So I'm not sure that everyone listening to the podcast is like a paramedic student. I'm not sure that everyone has heard that. So what are what are they meaning when they say high and tight? Yeah. So what they're talking about is what we refer to as a hasty tourniquet application. The idea of this is that you see some sort of massive bleeding, what appears to be massive bleeding. So either you see spurting blood, you see blood soaking into clothing or saturating towels or bandages or you see a pool of blood on the ground, or you see bleeding in the presence of altered mental status or unconsciousness or amputation, something that makes you think, oh, this is massive bleeding. So instead of cutting off their clothes and doing a a thorough blood sweep and trying to figure out what the maximum extent of that wound is while they're still bleeding, the immediate response is to shut off blood flow to the affected extremity as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to turn it off as high as you can by placing a tourniquet over the clothing as high up as you can on the affected extremity and tightening that tourniquet down until the bleeding stops. That is what we refer to as a hasty tourniquet. And it is a temporizing measure until you can conduct that thorough evaluation and place a deliberate tourniquet A deliberate tourniquet is placed two to four inches above the maximum extent of the wound over the skin. I've seen cases where it was reported that they needed two tourniquets for the leg. 
Absolutely. This is uh, this is something that we teach commonly. The legs specifically tend to require a little bit more in terms of uh, compression in order to achieve occlusion of that artery. And so while one commercial tourniquet with a one and a half to two inch band going around the leg can achieve quite a bit of pressure, sometimes it's not quite enough. And so it is absolutely indicated. It's absolutely uh, within the realm of, of appropriate to place a second tourniquet right next to the first tourniquet so that there's no gap in between the two and then tighten it down until bleeding stops. The second one, would you put it, if possible, proximal to the first one? Yeah. If I wasn't able to place the first one as high as I would like, obviously the, the tourniquet needs to be a couple inches proximal to the maximum extent of the wound. And so it stands to reason that the second tourniquet is going to go proximal to the first. If you've placed your hasty tourniquet as high and tight as you possibly can, then you may not be able to place it any more proximal than as high and as tight as you can. In that case, you just place it distal as close as you can to the first tourniquet. There's even more tourniquet foo that we teach to military medics, um, especially as they kind of ascend into the higher ranks or into special operations techniques like evaluating whether or not the wound actually needed a tourniquet in the first place and maybe reducing that tourniquet to a pressure dressing, Mm -hmm. which is not something that I've seen in civilian practice. Reducing meaning they take it off. Yeah, meaning you place your your hasty tourniquet uh, because you haven't done an assessment and there was suspicion of massive bleeding. But then upon further examination, you cut off their clothing and you look at their wound and you figure out, oh, this just looked bad. This isn't actually bad. You pack the wound or you place a pressure dressing, what we call an emergency trauma dressing, which is like an ACE wrap with a bandage on it. And then you slowly release the tourniquet and that's kind of a, another important um, important design factor for tourniquets is if you're going to be employing this technique, you have to be able to slowly release the pressure on the tourniquet. And this is where a windlass comes in handy. The ratcheting and the elastic tourniquets tend to just kind of, they're tight on and then they're completely off and there's really no in between. So you release slowly and you check for re-bleeding on the, the wound site. And if you don't get any re-bleeding, then you know you've successfully reduced that tourniquet. There's so many other things I want to talk about, but we're going to have to save it for another episode. Maybe next time we can talk about hemostatic agents and wound packing that you've referenced a couple of times. But I'm truly going to make uh, the listeners wait till you come back. I wanted to talk about the two things that I think are the two most important pieces or the two things that you really can do on the soccer field, and that's direct pressure in a tourniquet because I think that's where bleeding is happening. It's it's happening in the workplace, as you were saying, like industrial settings or um, at the church or at uh, community events. If it happens, pretty likely I'm going to be just out doing my regular life and not, I'm not going to have a junctional tourniquet or a hemostatic agent with me. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a, there's a very interesting incident that happened a, a few days ago. Uh, a police officer was called out for a domestic disturbance and upon arriving realized that it was not something that he was needed for. And so as he was making his way through the front yard and back towards his patrol car, he opened the the chain link fence gate, walked through, felt a sensation like his shirt was getting snagged on the uh, on the fence. 
And, you know, so he gave it a tug, continued walking back to his car and then realized that, you know, he was bleeding. And so he took a look at his, uh, where he was bleeding from and there was pulsatile red blood coming from this wound. And so he immediately grabbed his tourniquet and applied it and drove himself to the emergency department. As it turns out, it was just a, uh, a couple major veins. It was the basilic vein in the upper arm. And there was no arterial bleeding. It was just venous bleeding coming out. He saw what he thought was significant bleeding. He applied a tourniquet. And what was interesting about that, a couple interesting things. The first is that it was not a shooting involved bleeding, which is uh, surprising because you listen to that story and you're thinking, and then, and then. <laughs> right. I was, I was, I was like, when did he shoot himself? <laughs> Yeah, it was the chain link fence. It's like a game of Clue. You know, this was not what you would expect to be the cause of serious bleeding. And the second thing that we saw was that he placed a tourniquet on himself. The wound he described continued to bleed because it was venous bleeding, because it was the, the basilic vein that he had lacerated open. That lets us know that that vein continued to have pressure there there continued to be arterial blood flowing down his arm and then back up his veins, which tells us that he didn't apply that tourniquet as tight as he could have or should have. A, bleeding can happen anywhere. And B, you really do need to be prepared for it. Otherwise, because tourniquets are painful, you will tend to not apply it as tightly as you should. Mm-hmm, right. Especially on yourself. Yeah, apparently, apparently. Overwhelmingly, we see that tourniquets are not self-applied. And so it's probably the one thing that we train the most on. You know, I, I see people trained to self-apply tourniquets probably more than I see them applying to other people. And it's it's the least likely thing to happen. We teach uh, the students to tighten down the windlass. We tell them to crank that thing down until you, you see the bleeding stop. And then also check for the absence of a distal pulse. Well, the most important thing is the the stopping of the bleeding. So you may not have a distal pulse depending on what vasculature has been injured or whether, it, you know, even if there's a, a limb there. So you want to tighten it down as, as, as tight as you can. Really, the trick here is with most tourniquets, you need to get it tight at the buckle before you ever engage the windlass. One of the things that people get wrong all the time is that they'll put it on loose and then they'll try to tighten it at the windlass and make it tight. And after about the fourth or fifth rotation of that windlass, you're getting diminishing returns. Next time you pull out a tourniquet, take a look at it. You start twisting it four, five, six, seven times, and it's building up a column of fabric. And then that fabric's just going to fold over and you're not going to get any more. I've seen exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. If you can slip two fingers underneath that, that tourniquet band before you start pulling or start twisting the, the windlass, it's not tight enough. What we advocate, especially with the cats and the, and the kind of the self-adhesive Velcro, what I call the, uh, the, the rainbow pull, you know, you pull up through the, the buckle and kind of make a rainbow motion with your hand as you lay it down over the, uh, the Velcro. I'm sure it isn't painting the picture through the power of radio as it would with a uh, actual demonstration. Oh, I got it with the rainbow. I liked it. The rainbow. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Yeah. So get it tight and then you shouldn't have to twist it more than three or four times, especially with a well-made tourniquet. We were talking before we started recording how we both got our start in medical education as CPR and AED. 
instructors, we would go out to, it sounds like we did the same thing. I would go out to like big companies that were either like manufacturing or um, like these huge kind of, com- uh, you know, industrial complexes and teach CPR and AD and first aid to the employees. I happened to work for the American Red Cross, and this is when I was in paramedic school. That was such a great experience to be simultaneously in school learning things, but then almost as soon as I was learning it, I was going and teaching other people. It really reinforced those topics. What do you think about current paramedic students who are, you know, EMTs being uh, stop the bleed educators? Personally, I think it's a great idea. There's no better way to learn a subject than to teach it. The people who are qualified to teach are anyone who has experience with bleeding control and some medical background. For example, you know, obviously PHTLS instructors, anyone who's taken TCCC or TECC, uh, nurses who have taken the trauma nursing core curriculum, any pre-hospital responder, doctor, mid-level or nurse who's taken the bleeding control curriculum and are familiar with what we teach. Those are kind of the the baseline recommendations for an instructor. This is meant to be delivered to non-medical laypersons. And if you do have a medical background, which everyone in paramedic schools and EMT, you have the requisite knowledge to deliver this um, effectively and to answer any questions that people may pose of you. So I think it's, it's a great idea. In fact, Andrew Fisher had the had the um, the great idea to reach out specifically to paramedics and other people in the EMS community for this month and for National Stop the Bleed Day on the on the twenty third, because they know their communities, they know their local resources, and they are in the perfect position to set up these courses to find people willing to host the courses and and give space to host students and and these classes. They're in the perfect position to teach and to recruit other instructors. And they're in the perfect position to get the word out and and talk to their local media and and make this thing bigger than it was last year. Let's fantasize that we've hooked somebody, right? Somebody's listening right now. They're in paramedic school or, or they're anyone listening. We've hooked someone and they want to, when they're done with the podcast, they want to go figure out how to get started teaching. Where where would they go? What's the website? So the website you would go to to register as an instructor is bleedingcontrol.org. And this will take you to the American College of Surgeons official bleeding control website. Um, there you can uh, fill out the form and register as an instructor. You have access to all the instructor materials and the certificates and everything that you need. Uh, the second thing that I would uh, that I would have you do is reach out to us in National Stop the Bleed Month. You can find us at stopthebleedmonth.org. Find out who your state coordinator is. What we've done is we've reached out to we've reached out to people in all fifty states and territories. Uh, some people over in other countries, and we've asked them to volunteer their time to coordinate Stop the Bleed efforts in their state and to match people up with resources and vendors and things like that. Uh, It was relatively successful last year, and we want to see it be even more successful this year, is we're talking to industry retailers of medical equipment, people who are the leaders in selling bleeding control materials. For example, last year, 
North American Rescue put out Stop the Bleed kits, uh, which was fantastic. Another group that supported us last year was Tactical Medicine Solutions with their um, soft TW tourniquet. So we're hoping for a lot of the uh, similar support this year with, uh, with companies that sell those products so that we can extend a discount to the instructors who need to replenish their own supplies. You're talking about these supplies. I have to give one shout out to my friend, Katie Contreras. She has taught so many of these Stop the Bleed courses, which they're taught year round, right, Max? Like you guys highlight it for this month, but this can happen any day of the year, right? Absolutely. So shout out to Katie. I, I can't even imagine how many of these she's taught. And it, the reason it occurred to me is the amount of equipment that she hauls around with her, all these um, trainers and tourniquets and everything. Um, it's It's fun to see her rolling in with all that stuff. You know, for an individual buying a tourniquet, you're making the investment of, you know, $30, $40. Uh, for an instructor, you're making hundreds of dollars worth of, of uh, purchases to to get these tourniquets into classes. And then a tourniquet is a single-use device. You don't wash it off and put it back in your medical kit. But that is precisely what instructors are generally doing. They're using these tourniquets over and over and over again until they fail. And then they need to be replaced. The hope is that by reaching out to these large companies that, that sell tourniquets and asking them to support us with a, uh, with a discount, that we can pass that on to instructors who do need to replenish their supplies. And we'll ask them for some of their time to teach free Stop the Bleed classes. And in return, we'll try to, uh, to hook them up and, and put them in a good place as well. Like you gave me so many little nuggets. I, I appreciate you. You truly do know. I think uh, if it's about bleeding control, you're the man. You know, er- everyone everyone on the National Stop the Bleed Month team is hands down uh, an expert on this. They they really know the, the subject cold. Um, a lot of these people were instructors for various agencies. You know, one guy, his last gig was literally teaching combat medics in their, in their infancy down in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm just lucky to be a member of this, this team. I have to ask, cause you gave me a whole hour and I can't imagine how many hours you've poured into the promotion of, of this month and getting everything going. And what is it that you think drives you? Man, if I knew that I could probably explain to my girlfriend why I spent so much time <laughs> doing this stuff. Um, I have no idea. I love to see people at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. I like to be surrounded by people who bring their A game and who I can rely upon. And the best way for me to be in that environment is to create that environment. Mm. And so if I am reaching out to my peers and and helping them be better, and, and the only way to do that is is for me to educate myself as well. So it's it's a self development journey. But if I if I can make people better at what they do, then I think that just benefits kind of the entire world around me. Kind of be the change you want to see. I appreciate it, Max. Thank you. I've actually been wanting to get you on the show for quite a long time, and I think this was the perfect topic. <laughs> you know, I. I Honestly, a little starstruck. You know, I I listen to your podcast uh, religiously and really enjoy what you do. And I think uh, I think I've told you on multiple occasions that it it brings a much needed 
thoughtfulness and voice to the collection of podcasts that we have in our community of practice. Thanks. Do go on. What else? <laughs> <laughs> go on. Uh, do go on. <laughs>